And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. In 1938, Orson Welles terrified millions of Americans with his radio narration of H.G. Welles' War of the Worlds. Now, the drama was so realistic that many thought that the aliens were really actually invading our planet, and their intent, of course, was on destroying the human race. Now, it was only fiction, and no one should have believed such a far-fetched tale, but many did. Now, the Bible clearly affirms that we are engaged in a combat with an unseen enemy that is intent on destroying human beings. Right? Scripture is very clear about this. Ephesians 6, 12, Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a frightening truth which no one should doubt or ignore. However, many do doubt it and they live as if it's not true. Now, the Apostle John, he affirms that the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Luke is showing us here that Jesus' miracles establish his legitimacy, his authority as the Messiah, the Son of God. And he was sent to deliver us from the power of Satan. But Jesus' authority put him in really direct conflict with the Jewish uh, religious authorities. They didn't want to yield to him. Now, in verses 14 through 54, uh, Luke shows us the mounting tension between Jesus and these religious leaders. Uh, rather than approaching Jesus with a, a humble heart, a teachable heart, and open minds, they accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And they challenged him to show a sign, demanding a sign from him from heaven. Now, as such, they were really reissuing the third temptation that Satan put before Jesus to use his power for show by casting himself off of the, the temple pinnacle. Now, Jesus soundly refutes their demands by giving this rather extensive teaching on spiritual conflict. It's a heavenly war. So when we learn that Jesus' miracles authenticate his victory over Satan, we have to follow him decisively. In other words, this isn't just a, a subject to banter about in interesting discussions. Lives, eternal destinies are at stake. People cannot ignore Jesus. They have to decide for themselves or they are against him. Neutrality is not possible. We're going to see that in this passage. We either follow Christ into battle on his side or we oppose him and we remain on Satan's side. There's only two options. Let's pray. Father, we pray that through the music and through the reading of your word and through the preaching of your word this morning that you would touch our hearts, that you would declare to us the truth that yes, you're either for Christ or you are against him. There is no middle ground. Father, help us to understand the ramifications that has for us and for everybody that ever draws breath. God, give us eyes to see. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, first of all, there, there is a spiritual battle raging, as I said, with two and only two sides. 
Scripture clearly, clearly teaches that Satan is a real being, uh, a spiritual being. And he's not just an impersonal force of evil. He was an angel who rebelled against God and who commands of host of, a host of other evil spirits, typically called demons, who also rebelled against God. Now, here he's called Beelzebul. Uh, this is a popular name for the prince of the demons at that time. The, the derivation of this name is really debated. We, we're not real sure, but I tell you what. Luke wasn't concerned about the word's origin or its meaning. Uh, he only used it because it is a popular name for Satan. Satan and his demonic forces, they're committed to the ultimate harm and destruction of the human race. How many of you have ever heard of the four spiritual laws? It was an evangelism thing. Uh, who, 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 who did that? Uh, Bill Bright, Crusade for Christ. And they would start out saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That was the first thing you said in engaging in this conversation using the four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. Here's how it is with Satan. Satan hates you and he wants to destroy your life. That's his spiritual laws. Well... Since God's purpose is to be glorified through the human race, that's why he made us, created in his image, Satan's purpose is to defile us, to degrade people so that their lives do not bring glory to God. Now, some of Satan's demons are more evil than others, but they all have the same purpose. Since the fall of the human race, every person is born under sin, Satan's domain and power. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Now in this case, the demon caused the man to be dumb or mute. He, he couldn't speak. Now we've already encountered legion a few chapters ago. Uh, he showed us just the hideous harm that demons can inflict on people. Now, while we may not encounter such extreme cases, uh, we shouldn't be lulled into thinking that Satan is not alive and well on this earth today. J.C. Ryle says, Do we suppose, because bodily possession by Satan is not so glaringly manifest as it once was, that the great enemy is less, less active in doing mischief than he used to be? If we think so, we have much to learn. Do we suppose that there is no such thing as the influence of a dumb devil in the present day? If we do, we'd better think again. What shall we say of those who never speak to God, who never use their tongues in prayer and praise? What will we say, in a word, of those who can speak to everyone but God? What can we say but that Satan has despoiled them of the truest use of the tongue? That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? If he can cause us, sure, he can let us speak all we want, but if he can cause us to not speak to God, that's his ultimate desire. Now, sometimes we look at nice, decent, law-abiding people, and we assume that they are not in Satan's domain, as if there's some large neutral zone between heaven and, you know, heaven's kingdom and, and Satan's kingdom, that there's this neutral zone. Well, there's not. Satan is a deceiver. 
and he cutting, cunningly leaves many in their not too bad condition. So that we look at them and think, well, this per person couldn't be in Satan's domain. And don't be deceived. Even though a person may not look like Legion, you remember he was all scarred up and he was naked, uh, you know, there were so many demons in him and what have you. Or maybe because we don't see somebody that is struck dumb or blind by a demon, uh, we think that he or, or she um, cannot be in Satan's evil domain. But the fact is, they are. And they're headed for an eternity in hell if he's not rescued by Jesus Christ. This means that every time we proclaim the gospel to a lost soul, guess what? There's a spiritual battle raging. There are two and only two sides. Either the person ignores or rejects Christ and remains in Satan's domain, or Jesus Christ saves him and he is transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. So the second thing we see is Jesus Christ has authority over Satan's power. Now in that day there were a number of Jewish exorcists who tried to cast out demons by special potions, by incantations, uh, by some type of magical procedure. And sometimes they seemingly succeeded. Jesus hints at this, although they often failed. But every time Jesus cast out a demon, do you know what he did? He simply spoke. Every time he cast out a demon, he simply spoke and the demon obeyed. Yet in spite of his obvious power, these skeptics accused Jesus of casting out demons by Satan's power. Now what we learn from this is very interesting. What we learn is that belief in Jesus Christ is not simply a matter of having enough evidence. If Jesus had not done these mighty works or, or this miraculous, uh, miraculous power, or if he had done them by some, some sleight of hand, surely his critics would have pounced on this and accused him of practicing magic. But they never used that line of attack. Why? They couldn't dispute the fact of the miracles. All they could do was accuse Jesus of doing them by Satan's power. Now, even though Jesus knew their thoughts, this didn't convince them that he was from God. You see, as Paul says, the God of this world had blinded them, as he does all the unbelieving. Now, Jesus answered them by pointing out that if a kingdom or house is divided against itself, what's going to happen? It's going to fall. Similarly, if Satan is divided against himself, his kingdom will not stand. Jesus makes that plain. And then in verse 19, Jesus takes up the case of the Jewish exorcists. For the sake of argument, he assumes that some of them have success, that they're actually casting out demons here and there. But the Pharisees had never accused them of being empowered by Satan. If they're going to be consistent, then they need to say that the Jewish exorcists also did their work by Satan's power. Otherwise, those exorcists, they serve to judge the Pharisees for their hypocrisy in sing singling out Jesus for condemnation while accepting the exorcists who did the very same thing. But Jesus adds, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, the term finger of God, that goes all the way back to Exodus 8, verse 19. This is where the Egyptian mag magicians recognized God's power in his servant Moses. They said he's acting by the finger of God. Well, Jesus is saying that if Satan is not behind the power, then God 
clearly is. And by saying that the kingdom of God had come upon them, Jesus is referring to that initial phase of the kingdom as manifested in the presence of the king. Of course, they didn't recognize him as king, but that's what he was. Now, Jesus' deliverance of people from Satan's bondage, it, it anticipates that coming day when Jesus will reign not only in the hearts, but on the throne of David, when Satan will be bound from his powerful influence on this earth. But until his enemies are made his footstool, Christ exercises his rule from the Father's right hand in the hearts of all who submit their lives to him. Now Jesus further underscores his victory over Satan with the parable of disarming the strong man. Now in this story, Satan is the armed strong man. He is a powerful spiritual master. His homestead is actually the heart of unbelievers. All of an unbeliever's powers and faculties are Satan's possession, therefore his use. Timothy goes so far as to say they are captive to do, this is Paul speaking to me, Timothy, that they are captive to do his will. Now, uh, these possessions which are securely under Satan's rule, they're undisturbed, they're, they're at peace in the person. The unbeliever, dead in his sins, under the sway of the prince of the power of the air, is unaware of his own desperate condition. He doesn't know how bad off he is. As Matthew Henry describes it, the sinner has a good opinion of himself, is very secure in Mary, has no doubt concerning the goodness of his state, nor any dread of the judgment to come. He flatters himself self in his own eyes and cries peace to himself. Before Christ appeared, all was quiet because all went one way. But the preaching of the gospel disturbed the peace of the devil's palace. You ever thought about the gospel that way? That's why, that's why, the peop that's why people don't like the gospel. Because it disturbs them. They're in peace. They don't mind being under the devil's influence. They don't know they're under the devil's influence, but they don't mind it. It's normal. And here you come, come along preaching the gospel to them. And oh my goodness, now their little household inside ain't so peaceful. Well, Christ is the strong man who attacks the devil and overpowers him. As Paul puts it at the cross, Christ dis, uh, disarmed the rulers and authorities. And it says he triumphed over them. So what no mere man could do, Jesus did in his death and his resurrection. Satan is now a defeated foe, although he's still allowed to reign until he's bound at the second coming of Christ. Now this means that Jesus is the only one powerful enough to save a soul from Satan's dominion and power. Men cannot do it. Uh, by their own willpower, by their own determination, by their own moral reformation. Now, even though men can get free of problems like drug and alcohol abuse or sexual addiction through self-help programs, this is not the same as salvation from sin and Satan. The focus of those uh, programs is never the glory of God. It's the happiness of self. I want you to hear this. Satan is not unhappy if a drunk becomes sober and still goes to hell. 
that's just fine with Satan. It takes more than simple moral reformation. What that sinner, what every sinner needs is the deliverance that only Jesus Christ can give. Now, we've seen that there's a spiritual battle raging with two and only two sides. We've also seen that Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ has the authority over Satan's power to deliver, deliver us from that bondage of sin. Well, third, and this is the stickler, we are either on Jesus' side or Satan's side. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. In other words, neutrality, nope, not an option. You can't straddle the fence by saying, well, I'm not a committed follower of Jesus, but neither am I a follower of Satan. Nor can you correctly say, I don't follow Jesus or Satan. I'm my own master. Scripture begs to differ. Jesus makes it plain. Either you follow him and you are against him, or you are against him and you're in Satan's camp. These are the only two options, one or the other. Now, Jesus goes on in verses 24 to 26 to illustrate what happens when a man tries to be neutral. It doesn't work. Perhaps a man has experienced this, this moral reformation, either through these Jewish exorcists or through his own willpower and determination. The demon that he has struggled with for all these years has left him. As Matthew Henry describes it, Satan gives orders to his troops to retreat temporarily in order to ambush the deluded soul. Now, at first it's wonderful. The man sweeps out the dirt from his soul and he feels this sense of order and peace that he never felt when he was under bondage to his former sins. But meanwhile, the departed demon is restless. Jesus says, passing through waterless places. That's just a metaphorical expression. You see, to the demon, to dwell out of men is a wretched banishment. The demon is not a happy camper until he moves back in. So what does he do? He goes and gets seven more spirits who are more evil than him, and they all move in together to the man who has swept his house clean. Now, the intimation is he has not become a believer He's just simply, he's gotten rid of the devil somehow that was in him, the, 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 the demon possession, and now he feels so good. Now, Jesus goes on to say, the last state of this man becomes worse than the first. We understand that in terms of this illustration, but what does that mean to us? What are we to learn from this illustration? Well, Jesus' words are a solemn warning to us. Never be satisfied with religious Reformation without true conversion. There is a difference. Martin Lloyd-Jones points out, we must always remember that there are other powers besides that of Christ which can give results. It's possible for men and women to get relief from many of their ills and troubles apart altogether from the gospel. You just got to go to, I think it's Acts 16, where Paul and Silas are walking around and uh, there's this girl who is following them around and saying, hey, pay attention to these guys. They are from the Most High. And she, the, the people that own her, 
used to make money off her because she could tell the future. She could kind of predict the future. And so they were making all this money. Now, what she was saying was true. Paul and Silas were, <laughs> in fact, from the Most High Guy, and they should listen to them. But Paul knew exactly where she was getting her information. It was from a demon. So Paul turns around. He's aggravated after days of this, her following around. Even though it's the truth, he rebukes the demon. He leaves. She can no longer do what she used to do. The people that own her are mad. So they throw Paul and Silas in prison. My point is, she got her right knowledge not from God, from somewhere else. You can get help from other places. But if Christ isn't at the center of that help, hmm, it's not good and it's not going to last. Now this truth is important in our day when truth and doctrine are, are really set, as, set aside as, as just not that important. There's really no consequence to them. We really don't care about doctrine. We want to know, does it work? What will the gospel do for me? Will it, will it help my troubled marriage? If not, then I'll go to the world and try to get some help there. And again, if we get help from any other power than Jesus Christ and his gospel, we're not getting true and lasting help. You can get a, a clean and well-ordered house, but you don't have transformation of your soul. You may have a sense of peace and freedom from those troubles that plagued you, but you don't have yet eternal life. You have a temporarily empty house. I want you to think about the, the, the sinner who turns and trusts in Christ. What does he now have? He now has the Holy Spirit residing in him as a permanent occupant. More alarming, you may feel content without Christ to the degree that you assume that all is right with your, your soul. This is when you've cleaned everything out, but you haven't found Christ. You feel good. Things are going great. But you don't have that desperate sense of need anymore. You're not going to flee to the cross to lay hold of the only true Savior. And that's the Lord Jesus. It was his blood, his shed blood, that is necessary to deliver you from Satan's power. So in that sense, your last state has become worse than your first. When you adopt a false philosophy or believe a false doctrine, at first it seems to give you some satisfaction. But after a while, it begins to wear off and it begins to disappoint. It leaves you not just where you were before, but in a worse condition because now you distrust everything, even that which is true. You become cynical even of the gospel. So Luke presses you to answer this question. Is Jesus Christ who he claimed to be or not? Is his authority as the Messiah sent from God established by the miracles that he performed or not? Is Jesus the Son of God in human flesh or not? If so, you need to commit yourself to follow him whatever the consequences or the results. You may suffer trials, persecution, even death. But if Jesus truly is Lord, if he alone defeated Satan's powers, 
then you must commit yourself to him and to him alone. Not to him in some program or to some human deliverance. No, to Christ. Well, how do you do this? Well, fourth, the way to be on Jesus' side is to hear the word of God and do it. Now, as Jesus is speaking, a woman in the crowd raises her voice and says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Now, it's interesting that right in the context of Jesus' teaching about demons, this woman extols Mary. Now, she may have been well-meaning, but clearly she was a little misguided. She was trying to give praise to Jesus by saying something like, Your mother is a woman truly blessed to have a son like you. Now, that's true. We can't argue with that. Mary was blessed by God to be the mother of Jesus. And his response doesn't deny this, but it does correct the direction of this woman's thoughts. He says, in effect, uh, natural family ties to me are not the point. The point is to hear God's word and do it. So, the person who is decidedly with Jesus just doesn't mouth pious platitudes. No, he hears what Jesus says and he acts on it. Now, this isn't teaching salvation by works because the word of God that we must obey, it clearly teaches that we are saved by grace through faith. But the Bible is also clear that saving faith is obedient faith. And if you read the Bible regularly, particularly in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, uh, you're daily going to get a new dose of Jesus saying something new to you. You may, you, you, well, I'm assuming that you're a believer. But as you read your Bible, he's going to give you more marching orders. Jesus says what really matters is to hear me and do it. And of course, we hear Jesus through his word. Well, Jesus' clear authority over demonic forces shows that he is both Savior and Lord. Therefore, each person is forced to choose sides. This is a heavenly struggle. The heavens are in a struggle for your soul. Now, having heard the word of God, we now act on it in obedience to Jesus or else we are opposed to him and we are in league with Satan. There's no middle ground. Remember, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's, he's setting himself against everything else. Neutrality. Buddhism. You name it. No. You're either for Jesus or you are against him. It's that simple. Jesus says it quite plainly. During that part of the Naval War College course known as fundamental, Fundamentals of Command and Decision, the instructor, he was stressing the importance of being able to make sound decisions under extreme pressure. Now, a visiting officer from a small foreign navy spoke up. And he says, talk about decisions. I was 700 miles out to sea in my destroyer when I received a dispatch from my base. We have just had a revolution. Which side are you on? Think about that. That's a hard decision to make and to let them know with that lack of information. Well, thankfully, our decision isn't that difficult. We have solid scriptural evidence to go on. We have the clear record of the gospel accounts that relate to us, what Jesus said and what Jesus did. 
William Barclay, a famous commentator, he puts it this way, either what Jesus said about himself is false, in which case he is guilty of such blasphemy as no man ever dared to utter, or what he said about himself is true, in which case he is what he claimed to be and can be described in no other terms than the Son of God. You see, Jesus leaves us with a definite choice. We must accept him fully or reject him absolutely. And that's precisely why every man has to decide for or against Jesus Christ. There is this significant battle raging, uh, raging with two and only two sides. Now clearly Jesus has the authority over Satan and his forces. Now we're on, on one side or the other. If you're not decisively on Jesus' side, you are against him. And to join his side, you must believe in him and follow him in obedient faith. Uh, faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, this is a, just a hard-hitting topic this morning to understand that, yes, you are the way and there is no other. If we're not in you, then we are of the world. We are under Satan's domain. That's how Paul puts it in Colossians that uh, Christ, through his blood, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So, God, we thank you for doing that in our lives. We thank you for offering that to all men. Father, that just by trusting in you, that, they, that you will overcome Satan in their life. And God, you will make them a child of your father. Scripture, Paul tells us that actually we're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ when we are in him. So Father, help us to see this reality. Uh, there's only two choices and we have to make a choice. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've never decided for Jesus, Today is the day to do it. And how do you do it? It's by trusting in him. We like to trust in ourselves, particularly in the West. We're good about being independent. We're good about uh, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're good at trying to fix our own problems. And so that's kind of built into our culture, our nature as Westerners to take care of ourselves. We don't like depending on others. I will tell you this, and uh, some of you out here can uh, amen this. As folks get older, you know what typically they like least about getting older? Is the fact that they're no longer independent. They are dependent on others for certain things. That hits, car that hits hard at our core. Other cultures aren't like that. Uh, it's not, it's not un unusual in Togo, where I'm from, to have a family compound... Maybe half the sanctuary that has five generations living in it. And this person that's getting older knows that they've done their part and there's coming a time when they're going to have to be taken care of and they're fine with it. It doesn't bother them. Well, part of your independence leads to your stubbornness. I can get to God on my own. No, you can't. You cannot. Outside of Jesus Christ, you will never see the Father. He's quite plain, quite clear about that. You have to turn to Jesus. And Jesus said this morning in our passage, if you're not with me, you're against me. You cannot 
Be neutral. Don't delude yourself into thinking, well, I'm neither and I'm fine. No, you're neither and you're eventually going to go to hell if you stay in that condition. You need Jesus Christ. Turn to him today. Ask him to forgive you of that pride that would think, oh, yeah, I can take care of myself. Admit that you cannot. Admit that you have fallen short of the glory of God. That's one, Paul, that's one way that Paul talks about sin. We fall short of God's glory. And he says we've all done it for all have sinned, meaning himself. The only one who never sinned was Jesus. That's why we turn to him. So I'm gonna encourage you this morning, if you've never done that, if you've never decided for Jesus Christ, do that this morning. If you're a believer, think about your conversations. Your conversations are one or another. They're either in line with Christ and his precepts or what? The world. What kind of testimony do you have in the world if you look and sound like the world? Would they even know that you're a believer if they didn't see you in here on Sunday mornings? I hope they would. I hope they would recognize Christ in you, your hope of glory. We're all on this journey, on this continuum, some, somewhere. Some are struggling to find their identity in Christ. Some are secure in their identity in Christ. To the point that they live their life following Him. It doesn't matter where you're at. Take the next step. Wherever you're at in Christ. You know our ultimate goal? Paul tells us in Romans 8, 29... Uh, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's where we're all headed. Whether it looks like this, whoo, like a skyrocket taking off. Or whether it looks like this for you, it's all right. We're, we're, we're on that journey. And guess what? Even if you're like this, like a rocket, you still never reach it. It's not, a neat, it's not until either Jesus comes again or you go home to be with the Lord. Then you can kind of say, I've arrived. So we struggle in this walk. We struggle in our conformity to Christ. I hope you take that to God because he'll reveal to you where you fall short. Is there anybody in here that's been walking with the Lord for a long time and wants to say, no, I've arrived? I'm, I'm doing just fine. God has quit telling me you need to work on this. No. Scripture and our own testimony tell us, no, we don't arrive. We strive. Are you striving? And to what degree are you striving? Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.